I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 229. Ooh. Happy birthday! You scared me. She put her <laughs> arms open wide with arms wide open. Like I wanted to hug, but I don't. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Me. Sorry. Well, I didn't know what you were going to say. I didn't want you to be the first to say it. No, I was going to say, and it's right on time. Oh, no. Lame. It's your birthday! <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. What do you have planned for me? None, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that special. I mean, here, so I can open it on uh, the podcast. Nothing? You didn't plan anything? No. <laughs> you could open this smile. That was weird. <laughs> that was way weird. But you ain't getting nothing? Uh-huh. You getting a cake? You getting finger sandwiches? Mm-hmm. You getting my spinach dip? No spinach? Uh-huh. That's all. <laughs> yes, because I'm having a birthday party like um, a four-year-old on Sunday at noon. She's not lying. Mm-hmm. And we're going to play games. Yep. <laughs> so when you have heard this, that will have been yesterday. There may or may not be a gift. We'll see how she acts. Mm-hmm. Well, I know who's acting right, though. For real, though. Oh, God, that was awful. But okay. Patreoners! Thank you so much, Aaron D. from Kentucky. Nicole P. from Illinois. Amanda C. from North Carolina. Jessica A. from Louisiana. Mackenzie W. from Alabama. Lauren from New Mexico. Rebecca A. from California. And Zachary A. from Alabama. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. Hey, there's so freaking much happening over there. If you are getting to the end and you're like, man, I want some more episodes of these gals. Or you're like, you know what? I want some different episodes of these gals. Head on over to Patreon. And, uh, you know, join. And, you know, join. Patreon.com slash the APC podcast. But before we get into the episode, we just got to talk about Felix freaking Gray. Y'all know how much I love my little purple Felix Gray glasses? You can see clearly now. The blue blue is gone. (gasps) Oh! We clearly didn't practice that. (laughs) Y'all, what's Felix Gray, you may ask? Well, clearly you hadn't been listening to any of our episodes. Oh, Lord. But it's... Just kidding. So, Felix Gray is like the O-freaking-G of blue light blockers. And they're not just the OG. They're the best. They block 15 times more blue light that can make screen time, like, so tough on your eyes that it even disrupts your sleep. And, and y'all know, know. Beat ya. Oh, my God. We all know how Carrie doesn't like anyone messing with her sleep. She even got a CPAP machine because she don't want her snoring affecting her sleep. And I made Colby get one so his snoring didn't affect my sleep. So she definitely loves that aspect of Felix Gray glasses. And when you've been on the computer for long periods of time, and it's not just the computer, it could be tablets, phones, literally any electronic device, you can get headaches, blurry vision, dry eyes, and you know, the dreaded trouble sleeping. Because here's what happens. So as you're exposed to the blue light, it can actually lower the production of your melatonin. And that, as we know, helps regulate your sleep. So, ergo, my friend. Felix Gray glasses. To the rescue. (laughs) But seriously, we love Felix Gray. We tell you all the time just how much we love them. And also, their selection of glasses fits little heads like Carrie, big heads like me. And all the in-between. Even kids. And you don't have to have a prescription. That's the main thing because Carrie needs a prescription, doesn't want a prescription. She has perfect glasses for her. Me really needs prescriptions. They got me covered. Like she like really needs prescriptions. Like like <laughs> I can't see a thing with her glasses on. But don't worry, I can. So if you want the best blue light blockers on the market, prescription or non-prescription, for adults, kids, everything in between, including readers, head on over to FelixGrayGlasses.com slash creep. That is FelixGrayGlasses.com slash creep. You get free shipping, free returns, free exchanges, FelixGrayGlasses.com slash creep. So Colby and I have been watching, well, finished, this new show. Actually, I don't know if it's new. It's new to me. Mm-hmm. It's on HBO Max, and it's called Mind Over Murder. Ooh. You don't know it? Mm-mm. Oh, my God. I feel like I just won the lottery. <laughs> Take that, you motherfucker that just won it for, like, $1.3 billion. Ooh, they literally, Yeah, and they only get, like... I don't know, maybe make this up, like 400 million, which is like a literal fuck ton of money 
But it's like more than half of it goes to taxes. Damn. That's okay. I would gladly pay that to taxes. Oh, 100%. I would be like, well, here you go, taxes. Clever. (laughs) But anyway, y'all, it's so, such a good show. It's like six, maybe seven episodes. And it's about the murder of this oh my god actually the murder is pretty terrible so this of this well i would think but this elderly woman in her apartment and it's a kind of a whodunit and it is really good colby said when we finished it he said i've never watched a documentary and been more confused about who i think did it oh wow there is an ending though but it's still like a huh it's so good so i'm gonna make you mad at who i think did it probably okay so check back next week when she's watched it, and then we get an argument over who we think did it. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to cover it. No, no, no. It's a big, it's a big, big, big one. Uh, I, I ain't good. Yeah. Okay. How you set it up? I thought you were setting it up. Oh, no. I was just telling y'all that I finally watched something, okay. and holla fucking Luya, Donna hasn't watched it. That ain't what my story is. Oh, okay. Well, what a letdown. Well, I, you know. I, you gave me true crime blue balls. You're welcome. Well, my story that I'm actually doing, not Donna's blue balls, came from a suggestion from Nathan P. in the Facebook group. This story is about Ivan Milat. So he was born in December of 1944. And I should add, he lives in Australia. Ooh. So his dad was from Croatia and immigrated to Australia. I really want to go to Croatia. I'm sorry, I really do. Can you spell it? C-R-O-A-T-I-A. Well, I just am so smart. I tell you, I want to go there. But apparently his dad was kind of a shit dude, was pretty violent towards his mom. But in all, they had 14 kids. Holy Hannah. Now, the Millat family is pretty known to law enforcement in the area. It's like a they're a working class family with a bunch of boys that just kind of got in trouble, I feel like. You know who that kind of sounds like? Making a murderer. Yes. That's kind of the vibe, actually, Okay, that I got from them. It's just like, I don't think it's all terrible crimes. Some of it's just like shenanigan shit, but some of it's like pretty terrible shit. The Malat family is a Malat of trouble. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, though. They're really into guns and like, they do a lot of target practicing and like, part of gun clubs and stuff, which I feel like just isn't, like, not what you think of when you think of Australia. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of outback there. What's that have to do with anything? In Australia? Yeah, but the gun laws are just so much stricter. And maybe it just was the time, too. Maybe they weren't as strict at this point. But, But here's the thing. So, Ivan had gotten in trouble, even at a young age, a lot for, again, just, like, criminal mischief. Like, theft, that kind of thing. Mischief? That's terrible. It is, but it's not, like, murder. I thought you were going to say, like, I don't know, graffiti, knocking a mailbox down. Oh, yeah, I guess that would be more mischief. No, he, like, robbed people. (laughs) Allegedly, when Ivan was 17, he told his brother, Boris, that he had accidentally shot a taxi driver during a robbery, but there's nothing to corroborate that. But this is where things turn really south with Ivan. When he was 26, he was charged with raping two women who were backpackers. Oh my gosh. But okay, this is where this case is so, so, so fucked up. So basically, he kidnapped these two backpackers and pitted them against each other almost in a way like, that may not be the right word, but basically he said, I'm going to kill y'all if one of you doesn't have sex with me. Mm, And so one of the women was like, fuck, I'll do it. Okay. Yeah. You know that podcast, Red Handed? Mm -hmm. So they did a really, really, really great episode on Ivan. So I highly recommend you listen to it. But they were talking about on this podcast how a lot of stuff talks about how Ivan actually got off on this case on a technicality. But he didn't get off on a technicality. What they did was his defense attorneys were like, see, this woman, she is a bit of a slut. And yeah, and they're like, and she actually like she was bisexual. And so this was actually um, 
consensual sex because she agreed to have sex with him. No, it's rape because she, air quotes, agreed to have sex with him to save her and the life of her friend. Yeah. Whom neither one of them would ever have been put in that situation had he not kidnapped them. Right. So, and I had a fucking technicality, but that's how he got off. That's ridiculous. That's the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my fucking life. That's under duress. Yeah, that's not consensual. No. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. Also, the peeps at Red Handed, they have the best accents. For sure. There was also an episode of Crime Investigation Australia that I watched on this case. And um, it's season one, episode four. Okay, so I want to preface this case, though, with when all of this starts coming about. It was when Australia had just secured the um the bid for the olympics and one of their big things that got them the olympics was how safe australia is again you know their gun laws are different all the things and so it's just a tends to be statistically a safer place we've seen wolf creek well i have so on september 19th 1992 there were two people jogging through the melangelo forest when they notice like a smell and they're like what the fuck is this and they start looking around and they find a body that was actually not very well concealed and so they go and they tell police police come and you know investigate the area and they end up searching a little bit beyond the body and find a second body oh my gosh so what year is this 1992 okay so those bodies were identified as Carolyn Clark and Joanne Walters. So Caroline and Joanne were backpackers that happened to meet in Australia and made friends. And they were heading in the same direction. And so they were like, hey, let's go together. Fast BFFs. Mm-hmm. And from what I gather, too, around where they were backpacking, it was like one of the original hostels for backpackers. Like, it was just, like, very common for people to go through these areas to travel on to work at different fruit farms to, like, pick grapes, pick bananas, all the different stuff. And they would do that for summer jobs. But the two girls were killed pretty differently, though. Caroline had a blindfold around her and she was again a bit further away and she had been shot in the head multiple times. Oh gosh. But not only was she shot in the head, it was like her head was shot and then turned and then shot and then turned and then shot and then turned. What? They think maybe for like target practice, (gasps) but it was in all these different areas. Oh my gosh. Whereas Joanne had been stabbed like 14 times. Mm. And there was evidence of sexual assault. Bless it. Now, one of the times that that Joanne was stabbed was in the back. We're going to continue to see that where these people, spoiler alert, um, get stabbed in their back like in an upward motion that ends up paralyzing them. Oh my gosh. So it's almost like Ivan created this situation in which how how he stabbed people, it's like he paralyzes them and he has his way with them. And we never know how long he spends with his victims or, you know, is it hours? Is it, you know, a couple of minutes? We don't know how long each of these victims are tortured. One thing that the police find is a lot of spent shell casings and obviously the bullets that were used to shoot Caroline. But the thing about them is that they had an extra etching in them because there was some sort of like silencer used that will come in handy later. So the police searched the area to see, are there any more victims? You know, or is there any more evidence? Because we know that Caroline and Joanne were backpacking so they had a tent they had a literal backpack clothes water containers all of these things but none of that was found with their bodies so they're obviously searching the area to see what can they find well they find nothing but in october of 1993 a guy is searching the melangelo forest and he apparently is like trying to look for firewood not that that matters but he finds a bone And, like, at first, he thinks it's a kangaroo bone. Mm. But then he's like, that ain't a kangaroo skull. Shit. And 
they end up finding the body of Deborah Everest and James Gibson. And just like before, James Gibson had stab wounds that one was in his spine that would have left him paralyzed. When he was found, he was in the fetal position. Oh, gosh. Deborah had been beaten pretty badly. She had a fractured skull and jaw. She had been stabbed in the back as well. But here's the thing, though. Police had already found James's camera and backpack at a different location. Because someone had found it on the side of the road and was like, hey, let me see whose backpack this is. Like, can I return it to him? And no, it's like for someone who's missing. Oh my gosh. It wasn't until the next month that another skeleton was found. And this victim was Simone Schmidl. She too had been stabbed in a way that her spine was severed. Close to that, two more bodies were found. Holy shit. And I'm, I'm so sorry because I know that I'm going to pronounce these two names wrong. Gabor Nugabar and Anja Habshi. Those two had been missing for two years. Whoa. Anja had actually been decapitated. <gasps> what the fuck? And Gabor had been shot six times. So, of course, people were like, holy shit, this is... Like, from the jump, people were like, holy shit, this is a serial killer. Yeah. But... The police, it was almost like they kind of, not botched it, but botched it at the beginning because they found this body and then they were like, okay, we're going to look. Oh, here's another one. And it's like, oh, we're going to scour this forest. And they found nothing until a year later. It's like, oh, here's another body. But like they were actually murdered before the first ones we found. Right. So it's like they just didn't do that wonderful of a job. So they end up bringing in other investigators. They had brought in a profiler who initially talked about that it was probably two killers that they were probably working class had a difficult upbringing like very much describing Ivan it offered a $500,000 reward in order to find who is this serial killer yeah because here's the thing they were all backpackers they were all along the Hume Highway they were all kind of heading towards the same place. So there was somebody that was picking them up and offering them a ride Mm -hmm. because they were, it was very, very common for these backpackers to hitchhike to the next destination. One of the things was that they actually found by one of the bodies, some boxes of shell casings and they were able to kind of narrow down the shell casings because at first it was like, um, there's like, 200 different places where these shell casings were sold but then from like the batch and all of that they were able to be like okay well here's like 32 and then kind of whittle it down more and more and more Mm. but at some point and i'm not really clear on how this happens police actually talked to one of ivan's brothers and he's like yeah i saw something And it was two vehicles. It was this guy, and he had, like, orange hair. And, like, gave literally all the details on the planet about this vehicle with one of the victims that he, like, picked out of a lineup. But, of course, like, everybody has seen the victims. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is huge news. So, I mean, it's not unreasonable that he would be able to pick the victims out of a lineup. But it was just, like what are you talking about? Like he even said that as they were driving, like driving past this car that he was able to see that one of the bad guys had like soft hands. So they weren't, so they must've been like, like a desk worker type. Oh, okay. How'd you see that? Y'all were passing each other. How the Mm -hmm. fuck you saw that? He played himself with that. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, it, And honestly, I never understood, and maybe I just didn't understand something in an article, because I'm sure everything explained this better than I am, but I never understood how he, like, had himself inserted into this investigation. He might have just came and said he had information trying to get the reward. Now, I do know that the police were kind of looking at that family, because one, they knew they were in gun enthusiasts, they knew that they were part of this, like gun club and they were interviewing those people and and all of that and so you're right that's probably where it happened so one day though police get a call but it's actually 
the second time they've gotten a call and the third time they've gotten this report, but they actually lost the original report. So it was like it was a whole new set of information. There was a guy by the name of Paul Onions. What? So he real and he tells police, look, I already gave you this report, but like nobody seems to be listening to me. But back in January of 1990, I was backpacking. He doesn't live in Australia, but he was like, at the time, I think he lived in England. But at the time, he was like, I was backpacking through Australia. I was same path, same everything, and was offered a ride by this guy that called himself Bill. Oh, Bill was like, hey, I'll give you a ride. So he hops in because everything is like, it's got to be this like four-wheel drive vehicle because of how far off mm-hmm. in the woods they were. You know, it's got to it's gotta be someone who's well-versed in the woods, blah, 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 blah. So he's like, hop in this four-wheel drive and we're going down the road. He's, you know, we're just doing kind of regular backpacking chit-chat. Um, but then the guy starts asking him questions like, does anybody know where you're going? And do you oh, have special Lord. forces training? And what? I know. Look, if I have learned anything from my bitch Bible podcast that I'm obsessed with, there's one thing she taught us to do. Always pretend like you know where you're going. Mm-hmm. Never tell anybody you like, let's say you're coming from the airport and you're in a cab, you're in an Uber, you're in a lift, whatever you want to do. Never tell them that's your first time to the city. Yeah. Never tell them that like where you're going, what's going on. Like, even when you check in a hotel, always get two cards. Like, you need two room keys, even if it's just you. Like, all the things. Like, never tell them information. Like, does anybody know where you are? Yeah. She even said, like, she'll pick up the phone and pretend to be talking to her dad and be like, hey, I'm in the cab. I'll be there and blah, blah, blah. Okay, see you then. Yeah. You know, so that people think that someone's waiting on you. Yeah. That's one fucking thing I have learned from that podcast. And (laughs) But that's exactly what this guy was doing was this air quotes bill was trying to get information out of paul onions to be like anybody waiting on you how strong are you you know he was trying to peel back the layers exactly donkey mm-hmm. well more strike but you get the point so paul starts getting a, like a i don't know about this this is kind of weird and air quotes bill is like oh i got this cassette that i really wanted us to listen to uh, i'm gonna pull over right here and i'm gonna get my cassette out so because, air quotes, Bill is getting kind of weird, Paul's surveying his surroundings. He's like, the highway, how many cars, like, took the seatbelt off. Like, if I gotta run, I'm ready to run. Mm-hmm. Picture Julia Roberts' runaway bride, he ready. When, air quotes, Bill pulls over to get this cassette out, he don't get a cassette out. He gets a gun out. And he's like, this is a holdup. And Paul's like, yeah, catch you later. And bolts out of the four-wheel drive little SUV type thing. Bill proceeds to then chase him. So they're like running up this highway. Paul's like zigzagging. (laughs) Bill's shooting some warning shots. He's like dodging cars, trying to not get run over, all the things. And he finally stops this one lady and is like, please let me in. She's like, "Uh, I got kids in the car. Like you can't. He's like, let me in. And like jumps in. And she really saves his life. And she's one of the people that was like, have you seen this serial killer bullshit? Like you really need to call the police again. Like I think she and Paul had both called the police. Wow. Like, and it was, I guess it was getting lost in the shuffle because this Uh was such huge news. But eventually the police fly him back to Australia, and are like, okay, okay, like, can you can you find him in this lineup? And he's like, yep, that's Bill right there. Ivan Malat, right there, that's him. And they had him. So they finally, okay, see, apparently, oh, Ivan was kind of like us with the security. Like, he had cameras, like, well, I got cameras. And he's like, the police couldn't just approach his land. Mm-hmm. He'd know. So it took them a little while, but they eventually get the warrants and stuff to search all the Malat land. That includes Ivan's house, the mom's house, all the things. When they get there, they find a treasure trove of, well, trophies of a serial killer. They find backpacks. They find water canteens where he scratched the names off. They find jewelry. They find literally all the things of all these victims. He had even given some of the victim shirts to his family members to wear, like, so he could watch them wear that and know where it came from. Oh, that's so creepy. But really, like, he's creepy, but he's not. He's actually a pretty likable guy. Like, he was, air quotes, attractive, and he had a, a bit of charisma about him. So that's part of what put these, all these victims at ease mm-hmm. to, 
um, hitchhike with him because he looked like a nice guy, but he was also very, like I said, charismatic. Apparently, he had affairs with, like, a lot of his brother's wives. Dang. And, like, brother's wives had kids that were probably his. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Yeah. So, the hard part about him, too, though, is because he didn't have a specific M- M.O. in that, well... Maybe not emo, victimology more so. Like he had a specific emo hitchhiker. Hey, you want to ride? And then I'm going to pull over and then I'm like, oh, I got to get this cassette I want to listen to. And then pulls out a gun and makes them like binds them and then takes them into the forest. But his victimology was all over the place. It was people from Australia. It was people from other countries. It was people, it was men, it was women, it was blonde hair, brown hair. It was everything. It was, there was, it was all over the place. The other thing is that, you know, Especially at the time, it wasn't uncommon for backpackers to go missing. So it's not like, oh, all of a sudden you had these seven people who are missing. No, there's like hundreds missing because they're off in the woods somewhere or people hadn't heard from them for weeks because they've been backpacking, you know, all the things. And so it's not like, oh, these seven people went missing. We've got a serial killer. It wasn't until the bodies were found Mm -hmm. that things really started to add up. Eventually, Ivan was taken to trial, and he was found guilty on the charge with Paul and the murder of all seven of the backpackers, and he was sentenced to life in prison. Since being in prison, though, he ain't so much of a model inmate. Oh, wow. He tried to escape. He went on hunger strikes because he couldn't appeal his case. He tried to swallow razor blades. Oh, gosh. But they say that it wasn't a an like a, a an attempt to die by suicide it was part of his like hunger strike and to to garner attention for his appeal but he never confessed and maintained his innocence until 2019 when he died from um esophageal cancer probably from the razor blades <laughs> also that's has, not a thing <laughs> i know it was a joke but also has anyone ever really swallowed a razor blade and it like went through their system i'm not sure because i'm just thinking about when it comes out that well it wouldn't though i don't think i don't think it would go all the way like i think it would stop in the stomach but let me go back to this though but the killing sprees did not end with ivan in 2012 ivan's great nephew matt killed one of his classmates david i'm gonna butcher this last name archeloni so matthew killed with one of his friends too they they killed this classmate and they took David to the Melangelo Forest as well. Mm. So hopefully that's it as far as the Malat family. But I don't know. A lot of people still think to this day that there was more than one killer. That maybe one of his brothers or more of his brothers were actually involved. Probably the one who was like, oh yeah, he had soft hands. I kind of think that maybe there was another one involved. Because I think it's so weird how, especially in the first one, it was like one was shot, one was stabbed. And that honestly, that happened a a good bit. Like there would be stabbings and shootings. But it's like, I don't know, it was almost like two separate people did it. Mm -hmm. And that was the original profile. And I felt like that was just kind of thrown out. But just the way that some of the Malat brothers kind of, again, inserted themselves into the investigation and all that. I just feel like one or more of them might have been involved. But Ivan took it to his grave. He didn't say a damn word. He gave nothing. He, and he maintained his innocence until he died. Wow. A lot of his case was circumstantial because he was like, well, you can't prove that, especially the stuff that was found at his mom's house, like the backpacks and all that. He was like, you can't prove that I did it when it's at her house. It's like, yeah, but you have a whole other treasure trove. I mean, it looks like fucking Little Mermaid's <laughs> thing in there yeah. of stuff that you have at your house. So who else is keeping their shit at your house? Right. It ain't happening. Like too much of a coincidence? I think not. <laughs> yeah, all of that's just a little, well, you look guilty, son. But who knows, though? That's all allegedly because we don't mm-hmm. actually know that. There's no physical evidence that points to it other than it's just weird. You know, it's not weird. 
taking care of your body. And how are you taking care of your body? Care of is taking care of me. Oh, Lord. Okay. It's true, though. It is true. I thought you were talking about something else because you can also take care of your body another way. But I'm letting somebody else do it. (laughs) That's true. I'm just single. But here you go. We're at two different stages of our life. And care of, it's for both of us. All of us. Young, old, older. (laughs) Care of is a subscription service that ships high quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. You don't have to go to the market. You don't have to go anywhere and be like, oh, what should I get? Do I need this or this? Because they all look the same. And then it's like there's 17 different brands and you're like, I don't know which ones buy one, get one, which ones, you know, Mm -hmm. you never freaking know. And it's like, again, which one do I need for me? So Care Of takes the guesswork out of it. You take a short in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals, and then it gives you personalized recommendations that takes the guesswork out of what supplements are best for you. And let me tell y'all that I have spent some money on things that I can't even take. You know, so if I would have had Care Of before I bought those, I would be richer. But Care Of came in clutch And I don't have to worry about that now. And because it's subscription-based, you never have to worry about it. It just keeps on coming. Yes, the best. Because I am terrible at putting stuff off till the very end. Carev's got you on schedule, and you don't have to worry about it. And each shipment comes with a customized booklet showing you exactly what is in your individual daily packets and why it was recommended specifically for you and your health goals. And it's so cool because the little packets that you take every day it has your name on it you just open it up it's easy you don't need scissors you just rip that little plant-based compostable what's that word i can't ever say you know what i'm talking about anyway the little film packet that it comes in so perfect and you just shimmy 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 that out take 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 and there you go you're off to healthy you <laughs> that's a viral tiktok right there <laughs> But like I said the last time, if you have a pill minder like I do, you can just do that all before anyway. And it's fine because those separated packs make it even easier to fill your pill minder up. Or what I would do is my pill minder, as Donna says, is for my morning stuff. I don't have any evening stuff. So I would just take the packets of vitamins at night. And it is satisfying ripping open the package. And we all like a good package. And it comes in like this little box that stands up so you can just pull out one at a time. So it's not like, what are all these bags? It's like in a good little box, you know, so you can just slide one out and it's all organized. Organization is sexy. So for 50% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code CREEP50. Again, that is 50% off your first order of Care Of. Go to TakeCareOf.com, enter code CREEP50. You don't want to miss out on this. That's T-A-K-E-C-A-R-E-O-F.com, enter code CREEP50. All right. Well, buckle up because I have got a good one for you. I think you'll really like it, Carrie. Okay. Okay. I better. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I just learned about a woman and seriously blew my mind. So I think you'll enjoy learning about her too. All of y'all, not just Carrie. Her name is Dorothy Louise Edie, but she's better known as Om Seti. Well, I'm already interested. Oh, Lord. Roles have reversed. Dorothy was born in London in 1904. Her parents are Reuben and Caroline. They were middle class, but like lower middle class. Reuben was a master tailor and Caroline a homemaker. Sadly, Dorothy's life was cut short when she was just three years old because she fell down the stairs leading into the basement when she was playing at home. She hit her head, knocking her unconscious. And so her parents called the doctor, you know, back in the day, doctors would make house calls. So he came, placed her on the bed, checked her out, and he regretfully informed Reuben and Caroline that their only child had passed away. Okay, um, I had to let you get through the sad thing because you literally said, they called the doctor and the doctor said, no more monkeys jumping on the bed. Oh, wow. I could not let that go, but I also couldn't interrupt sadness, but 
Okay, ma'am. <laughs> However, before the doctor could return to retrieve her body for burial, Dorothy woke up. She was playing in her room and seemed physically fine. Like, the doctor opened the door and the nurse was there, everything. You know, like, they were prepared to get her body and go. And she just woke up. And she is just sitting on her bed. So, probably like, probably like, what the hell are all y'all doing here? Right? Well, her parents were furious and basically told the doctor to get the fuck out of their house. Like, are you kidding me? Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster that they had just been on? But I don't know if she ever really died. People say she died and came back, but I think she was in a coma and she came out of it really quickly. And who knows? I'm not a doctor. I wasn't there. But nevertheless, Dorothy was alive and well, or so they thought. Dorothy started acting differently. She would beg her parents to take her home. And not just like once or twice, but more like a pleading tantrum. I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. And of course, her parents were like, you are home. And she would say, no, this is not my home. She would go on to describe it like big columns and gardens, but she didn't know the location. The changes in Dorothy even affected her speech patterns and shit. It sounded like she was talking with a foreign accent, but this is something known as foreign accent syndrome. And so it's something that some people, can I say some one more time, but some people who have had severe head trauma or a stroke will exhibit. So it sounds like they're talking in a different accent or a different language, but it's mostly because of the different speech patterns that you feel like this is what's going on. So her parents thought it might have just been symptoms of her head injury and dismissed it. Skip forward a year later. They were having a family outing day and they went to a British museum and Dorothy was a four-year-old, typical four-year-old, not enjoying it one bit. But at some point, they came across an Egyptian exhibit there. And Dorothy perked up instantly, which her parents were grateful for, but also baffled by her behavior. She took off away from them, like running so excited. They're, you know, just kind of looking around the artifacts and pictures. And Dorothy started wilding out about everything. She hugged statues. She bent down to kiss their feet. She then yelled at some of the other visitors because they were wearing shoes in the temple. Though I would imagine she was wearing shoes too, but I digress. Like, yeah, good point. (laughs) But she excitedly exclaimed to her parents, These were her people. Her parents had a hell of a time getting Dorothy to leave, but she was kind of being like hectic and embarrassing them. So they wanted to leave pronto. Well, they left, wrote it off as just her being a kid, you know, whatevs. Well, in 1911, seven-year-old Dorothy saw a picture of the Temple of Seti I, and that's when it all clicked for her. That was her home. It was a temple that was built for the pharaoh Seti in Abydos. She showed it to her parents, and she was like, this, this is where I have been talking about. This is my home. She said the only thing she didn't understand is that there were no gardens. The gardens that she loved so much that she had been yearning to be back in, they weren't there. And she didn't understand why some of the columns were missing, why it looked like that, but that was her home. Dorothy's parents really didn't know what to do, but they just let her keep exploring her Egyptian obsession, thinking that she would grow out of it. Later, Dorothy found another photograph, and this was of Seti himself, well, the mummified version of him, and she told her parents that she knew him and that she thought he was a nice, kind man. And I can just imagine her mom being like, that's nice, dear. Right. Okay, they're there. Yeah, and like... if I have to hear about this Egyptian pharaoh one more fucking time, you know, like, ugh. But fast forward, it was much of the same. Dorothy's obsession with Egypt and everything about it was growing. And into her teen years, her behavior, whoo, child. Her behavior got her kicked out of her Sunday school class. She was raised Catholic, but one day in Sunday school, she basically was like, 
mm, Christianity was the wish version of ancient Egyptian religions. Damn. And then the Catholic school she attended, they expelled her because she refused to sing some hymns that she said shamed the Egyptians and all the ancient religions. But, you know, she wasn't being quiet in these acts of rebellion either. She didn't just say, like, no, I'm not going to sing it. You know, one time she even threw the hymnal at the teacher before leaving the classroom. Okay, well, you know, you can make your, you can stand your ground, but, like, you don't be violent. Right. Say your opinion and move on. (laughs) One aspect of Catholicism Dorothy did enjoy was mass. She loved the traditions, and she remarked that it reminded her of the old religion. So the priest got word, visited their home, and was like, hey, about that, she's not welcome back in mass because she's basically a heretic. What the fuck? That's the, what that, okay, that's the thing I don't understand about religions. If, let's just say that that really is the case, and she's like a heretic, blah, 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 blah. Like, isn't that someone you would want to be in the service to, like, learn and grow and all that? Right. But, like, no, let's kick her out. Right. I'll make no damn sense. And she wasn't being, like, obnoxious there. You know, she wasn't making a scene. She just made an observation. Well, honestly, Dorothy took everything in stride, and she didn't pay attention to anyone because she knew what she perceived to be her real truth, and that was all that mattered. She began spending all of her free time at the museum's Egypt exhibits, and that's when a prominent Egyptologist named Ernest Wallace Budge. He taught her how to read hieroglyphics, but he was astounded at the pace that she learned. He was like, there's no way someone should be able to learn so quickly. And Dorothy was like, no, I've learned it all before. It's just now coming back to me. When Dorothy was 12, World War One began And the bombings in London were really bad. So her parents sent her to live with some family in Sussex. Dorothy would spend her days with her nose tucked away in books about Egypt. By 1918, Dorothy was 14 and she returned to London to live with her parents. This is when Dorothy began having visions or dreams at night. And she said that she woke up from a heaviness on her chest and she saw it was a mummy. And she was like, it was a mummy I had seen all those years before. It was Seti the first and he had his hands on my nightdress. Oh, shit. So, yeah, it was kind of like a wet dream kind of thing. Was she young? Yeah, 14. But she wasn't afraid or upset by this. Like, she enjoyed what she was experiencing. But then she started having nightmares where she was being beaten and interrogated in a dark room by someone other than the mummy guy. Said he had settled. <laughs> yes. She would wake up screaming and her parents thought that she was beyond their help. And so they sent her to a mental hospital, which was common back then, you know, but they all, they really, they didn't know what to do. Yeah, they did everything that they could for her. Yeah. And this happened a couple of times, but she never stayed long because they were like, nothing's wrong with her. Like she's saying these weird things, but like, we've done all the scans, we've done all the tests And there ain't nothing wrong with her. When Dorothy turned 16, she dropped out of school and doubled down on her Egyptian studies. And it was around this time that Reuben, Dorothy's dad, left his tailor job and pursued his own dream of working with moving pictures. The family, they were traveling all over Europe, and this helped Dorothy with her studies because she would visit every local library and immerse herself in their books about Egypt. The family finally settled in Plymouth, where Reuben opened a movie theater, and they lived above it. It was in Plymouth that Dorothy attended an art school, and she actually portrayed Isis on stage, and she was just like, this feels right. And Isis is an Egyptian goddess. So fast forward to 1931, Dorothy's 27, and she's moved to London to write for an Egyptian magazine. She met Iman Abdel Magid while working there, and they eventually got married. Iman was Egyptian, and he had to move back to Cairo. So Dorothy and him, you know, they kept in touch 
when he moved and that's like after they kept in touch and like, you know, things were still, the spark was still sparking. That's when they got married. And so she moved with him once they were married. When Dorothy arrived in Egypt, she kissed the ground and said, I am home. She had all of these dreams and all of her expectations of life in Egypt. And unfortunately, her marriage wasn't as easy as she hoped it would be. Yeah, because she's living in a fantasy. She's like, she's there for Egypt, not for her husband. Yeah. Well, well, also, Iman's family was kind of well-to-do, and they didn't like how Dorothy talked about having a past life. And they were like, she doesn't conduct herself like a lady should in Egypt. She's embarrassing us. And that really wasn't the only issue. It was during this time of her life that Dorothy started having nightly dreams of the god Hurrah, and it got to where Iman would wake up and find that Dorothy had sleep, sleepwalk? Is that a word? I don't ever know. She had walked in her sleep. <laughs> Just like, did you blow, like you, what's the pl- past tense of blow dried your hair? You blow dried it? You blow dried it? Yeah, I think it's blow dried. So what is sleepwalked? I think that's Sleptwalk? it. Sleptwalk? Fuck fine. I don't know. I think sleepwalked. But she would have walked somewhere in her sleep, but in their house still. But then it got to where she would be writing down stuff as if being dictated from like an unseen entity. And she was in like this trance-like state and he couldn't wake her up. And the language she wrote in, hieroglyphics. What? So these dreams made everything make sense to Dorothy. Hurrah had said that she was abandoned when she was three years old because her mother, who had sold vegetables and her father was a soldier, her mom died and her father could not afford to care for her. So she was abandoned basically like at the firehouse, but it was the temple of Seti the first in Abydos. That place, you know, the building she pointed to when she was four in the British Museum and was like, that's my home. Mm-hmm. Dorothy learned that her name was Bentrashit, which meant Harp of Joy. And basically, she served as a priestess to Isis. When she was 12, she was given the choice to go out in the world on her own or to stay at the temple But if you did, you had to remain a virgin. Then Dorothy had a vision of her meeting the Pharaoh, Seti I, in the gardens. And this is where their love blossomed. Uh Mm -hmm. See what I did there? But here's the thing. As a priestess to Isis, remember, you had to be a virgin and remain a virgin. Right. Well, that would have been all well and good. But she had found the love of her life. And they did the devil's tango, and she became pregnant. Uh So she was going to have to stand trial, because this was a big no-no. And if she told them who the dad was, it was going to be an even bigger no-no, because he's the fucking pharaoh. And she would probably be put to death. Meanwhile, he has literally no fucking consequences. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. Some things don't change. (laughs) Well, there was this man who took her down to a dark room where he beat her and interrogated her, trying to figure out who she was pregnant by and all the things. And remember, she had that nightmare that she was being beaten after she had seen Seti the First. But instead of dying by anyone else's hands, Ben Trashid died by suicide. So everything made more sense to Dorothy now. Her and Iman later had a son together. And do you know what Dorothy named their son? What? She named him Seti. That's messy. Yes. I'm like, oh. But see, here's the thing, too. His family was like, oh, my God. Yes. Love that. Because Pharaoh Seti uh-huh. the first. Like, you're giving Egypt all the love and support. But, you know. Yeah, little did they know. He her past lover. Well, even if he wasn't that, she's fucking obsessed with him. Right, right. Well, anyway, that whole thing with Hurrah coming and telling her all the details of her past life, it took place over a year. Like, so it sounds like, oh, he just came one time. No, that's why she was constantly sleepwalking and being, like, dictated, you know, doing all of this stuff. She had 70 pages of shit written down. Damn. 
And that year really strained their marriage. And after another year, Iman divorced Dorothy. He moved to Iraq to do a teaching job, and she stayed in Egypt. Some say that he wanted to stay married to her, but she refused to leave Egypt. And so that was all she wrote. So this is about the time that she started telling people her name was Amseti, which means mother of Seti. And that was of a tradition. I think it was more of the old tradition where the women and the men, like the mother and the father, would take the name of their eldest son. So it would be of Colby, but like Am Colby. Right. So, kind of like the Handmaid's Tale uh-huh. before the Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Cool, cool, cool. Yes. She began working as the first female ever with the National Department of Antiquities. But basically as like a research assistant, secretary. But this was still a huge deal because she was the first female ever. She never went to college and, you know, she had dropped out when she was 16. So, she couldn't be one of the, quote, you know, distinguished employees But she was very important to the department. And over the years she worked there, she did go on to publish several articles and books. During this time, Amseti really made a name for herself because she was really a huge help to several Egyptologists that she worked with, providing them insider information that no one would have known before. And it's like every time people were like, I don't know about that you know because everyone's saying okay x marks the spot here she's like yeah i think it's like three feet over to the right they're like no pretty sure we know she's like okay and then they're like you know digging their spot and they're like okay go three feet to the right and then they're like oh there it is yeah eureka well around town locals were kind of leery of Amseti because she was more than just a little different Because she was never embarrassed by her love for Egypt or her beliefs that she had been there before. She didn't necessarily say it was a past life and she had been reincarnated and all of that. She's just like, no, I have been here before. I have lived a life here before. Meanwhile, her poor son probably got bullied so bad. Right. She would tell everyone who asked about her obsession with the temple all the things. But one reason they were kind of weirded out by her is because she would perform rituals in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Also, she slept there sometimes alone. And, like, no one was allowed to do this, but because she was so important to, like, the antiquities peeps, they were like, yeah, here's the key. Go do what you want. You know, like, don't burn the place down, and you're good. She would also lay offerings at the, like, feet of the Sphinx. And so people were just like... I don't know. That's kind of weird. But that's what people did in the old days of Egypt and stuff. And so to her, that was her paying respect. She was also like really good at being a snake charmer and stuff. So people side-eyed that, but also were kind of hypnotized by how cool it was. And even though people talked about her being weird, they still went to her for help because she was really knowledgeable with medicinal shit. Real technical here, you know? Mm-hmm. But basically, she could read these ancient texts that no one else could. And she was like, oh, yeah, basically, this is a medicinal spell. Let me use them. And she helped cure arthritis, appendicitis, and also helped her own vision improve to where she didn't need glasses. But the thing she was most well known for was her medical cure for impotency. Imagine that, right? I mean, get it, girl. Well, in her 50s... No, she wouldn't have sex with them to do it. No, I know, but I'm saying... Oh, you said get it, girl. I was like, it wasn't sexual. I know, but... I mean, for them it was. Exactly. I don't know. I just... It felt like it went. Okay. Mind your business. (laughs) Well, in her 50s, Amseti had the opportunity to go to Abydos. Like, you know, for real, her home, sweet home. Mm -hmm. And she was like, done. She took a pay cut to go there. And this was the side of the temple that, you know, she had pointed to so long ago. And remember how she talked about the gardens and stuff and how she didn't understand where they were? Like, why weren't they here? Well, during her time there, she helped locate the gardens under ruins. Like, 
no one knew that there were gardens before. Like, again, they sat at her and was like, yeah, gardens, cool, 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 cool. But she was like, look, under this here, you know, rock, dig, and I'm telling you, like, this is where I would stay and blah, 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 you know? Like, she talked about luscious trees being there and, like, lotus ponds. Well, when they did excavate it, there were stumps and stuff from trees, and it looked like the ruins of the garden that she had described. And again, no one knew was there. What's going on? Right? And even then, there were still people who didn't quite believe she was being truthful. So when the chief inspector from the antiquities department came, he was like, okay. So they go to the temple, and it's dark. No lights. And he said, stand in this specific point. And I'm going to tell you to go find a certain wall painting. And she did. Never bumping into anything. Never making an incorrect guess once. These locations were paintings of stuff that had not been published. And so it's not like she knew them all by heart from her studies and stuff. And so he was flabbergasted. Like he was like, no, 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 no. Like I couldn't even do this. And he had studied them. So it was just like. Wow. And she's like, I know this place like the back of my hand. Like this was my home. Well, in 1964, due to a mandatory retirement age of 60, Amsetti was forced to retire. But because she was so useful and had knowledge that no one else did, the antiquities department made an exception and let her continue to work for five more years. And even then, after she worked in a consultant role, She also offered tours for the Temple of Seti, and she did that until she died April 1981, and she was 77 years old. Wow. And even still today, Egyptologists are still trying to prove things that she said and, like, say these were incorrect, like, blah, 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 but they can't. No one can prove anything that she had said or claimed wrong. And every time they try to prove her wrong... They prove her right. Even with Nefertiti, that tomb, she was like, it's not where anyone would look. And she talked to one Egyptologist. I don't know his name off the top of my head. But she told him that the pharaoh, Seti I, had told her where Nefertiti was buried. And she was like, no, I want to know. Like, tell me, tell me, tell me. And he's like, well, here's what I'll tell you. It's where no one would think to look, and it's really close to King King Tut. And so she was like, okay. And I think he told her more, and so she just kind of, she's like the old lady in Titanic, the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. But, uh, and so she's like kind of teased with this Egyptologist, and she's like, If they look by King Tut, like, to the left, you know, like, whatever, they might find, you know, something that they didn't know was there. And when they did some, like, I don't know, sonar things of his burial tomb, um, there was, like, something that they didn't know was there before. And so I don't know if they've excavated it or if it proved not to be her, but like there were some abnormalities where they never thought to look before with his tomb. How the fuck she know this stuff? So it's like, was she reincarnated as Dorothy Edie? Or I don't I don't know. Was she Ben Trasheet or was she Dorothy and she just had traumatic brain injuries? But I just feel like she was so obsessed It went beyond an obsession. Like, she... Made it her identity. Yeah. I feel like we've heard people who are obsessed with things before, but from three years old, you know, she was saying that she wasn't home. You know, all of these things that, what? And then, like, I mean, it was just instantaneous after her accident, her near-death experience. And so, I just really feel like... Maybe when she was in a coma, I don't know, like, if, like, her life flashed before her eyes, and it was the old life. I I don't know. I mean, I believe in reincarnation, so I believe in past lives. Yeah, but do you just 
start a new one when you you know what I mean yeah but she wouldn't have remembered that like I don't know what my past life was but when she had her near-death experience it's like it opened it yeah like the veil was thin and that's the past life that she remembered maybe well as much as I love the story of Amseti of her life we have something else I love They're a new sponsor, so new sponsor alert. Java House is all about cold brew coffee. And Lord, let me tell you, I love some cold brew. And Java House is all about cold brew. We are super excited to have Java House because, look, they just make a better cup of coffee. It's smoother, it's flavorful, and it doesn't have any bitterness. You know how sometimes it just tastes like your coffee has been, like, scorched? Burnt, yes. Yeah. And it ain't good. So you have to put a lot of creamer, a lot of everything. Well, you don't have to worry about this with a Java house. Because this is what they do differently. So the roasted coffee grounds are chilled in water for 12 to 24 hours. So that helps bring out the flavors without the bitterness. So instead of scorching the beans in hot water for a couple of minutes, it's actually chilled for 12 to 24 hours. So it makes it nice and smooth. Oh, okay. That sounded like a radio DJ. You did. Smooth Java house. <laughs> but seriously, it really does taste smooth because I've been doing their decaf because, you know, I can't have that much coffee and I love to drink cold brew coffee. So I drink one, not decaf, and then later in the day I can drink decaf. But I was like, God, this is so smooth. And... That's what everyone says. And I'm like, they're not lying. It's true. Well, so it comes in different varieties. Of course, it's got medium and dark roast, but it comes in pods, on tap, or bottle concentrate. So I've had it a couple of different ways. What I like about the pods is that sometimes you just want a little warmth. And the pods, when they come, they're liquid. So you can either do it as cold brew or you can put it in your coffee pot, you know, with your pods and make it hot and I've done it both ways and on tap you know what that is it comes in a box you put it in your fridge and I don't know if y'all remember Kathy Griffin but her mom when she would drink box wine she'd say you gotta tip it to get the last little bit out and let me tell you I will be tipping Java houses on tap because I want every last drop so y'all need to get in on this action with Java house because y'all know how much Donna and I me particularly, love coffee. And we want y'all in on this smooth coffee that doesn't have that bitterness. That's what I liked about it. It wasn't bitter. Like it wasn't like a at the end. Yes. And it's convenient. That's the main thing too. Because sometimes you don't have local coffee places that you can just go in and out. Uh, your own kitchen, you can always go. Because it's hard to make cold brew at home. So with this, you can buy it in pods, concentrate, or in a box. So go to javahouse.com and use promo code CREEP to get 10% off your order. So remember, javahouse.com, promo code CREEP. C-R-E-E-P. I mean, we all want a percentage off. So head on over to get your 10% off this awesome coffee. 10 out of 10 would recommend 10% off the cold brew and that cold brew, 10 out of 10, chef's kiss as Carrie would say. Well, back to my other love, Amseti. Here's the thing. Even if you don't believe in past life stuff, okay, you don't believe in reincarnation, that is fine. But how do you look at this like scientific evidence that she knew things that no one else knew, things that had been buried for centuries, and she knew that they were there, like the exact spot. It's not like she like, peeked and was like oh here it is under this rug let me tell him right here no they had to excavate that land you're right about that i believe in reincarnation but i think it's it's weird like she just died and came back and she came back remembering her other like it was like like you said like the veil was thin or she wasn't supposed to come back and she did so she had already gained all that information like her soul remembered everything and then it was like Oh, wait. Oh, shit. See, you got to go back. Yeah. So I don't know, but I watched an interview with her and she just had like the kindest soul. And I don't know. Also, she might have been 77, but 
she walked a little slow, but she'd probably still pass me in the mall. But she would get, she, she was getting around walking and everything, talking about everything. She loved her life in Egypt. And like I said, she took a pay cut to go to Abydos and like, and like she, but another thing about that interview is, um, I could never go to Egypt. I learned because one hot, but, and two lots of walking, but three, there were flies that were like flying all around and landing on her face. Oh, and so no. I was like, she's again, she is immersed in that culture and, She's lived there for so long that that's normal. I would have been like, can we just cancel this interview? Can we move it inside? Can we do something? Because, oh my gosh, like I wanted to like get it off her chin. You know, like let me flick that fly away. No, I can't be doing flies. Uh Uh-uh. That also might be because I've been watching the latest season of Westworld and they have a thing with flies. And why does the fly always have to land right by the eye? I don't know, but I'm like, oh, don't like it. What I also don't like is your story. Yeah, it's pretty fucking terrible. And I think, well, what I'd never heard of it, and this is like a serial killer. I mean, not that you've ever heard of every single serial killer across the world. Right. But he's pretty gruesome. But I think the problem, not the problem, well, the problem with him is he's a serial killer. But the problem is, again, he had no clear victimology. It was all over the map. It was more just opportunity of people he thought he could overtake when he offered them rides. Yeah. I mean, I guess so. a little bit of victimology in that they were hitchhikers or backpackers. But that's more to me, M.O. versus oh, okay. who he's cho- I don't know. That may be splitting hairs. But like, I think of like... Like Ed Kimber, how he liked a certain brunette that looked like his mom. Right. That is more victimology, uh, which again, what do I know? I watched Criminal Minds. That's how I learn all this. And yeah. so it's probably not even true. But I think if like his M.O. is... Somebody's M.O. is like, okay, I'm going to pretend to need help or I'm going to I'm going to give them a ride. I'm going to do all this. Yeah. But, but their victimology would be, well, they may give seven rides, but they're only going to kill the two people who look like whatever mm-hmm. if they have a specific victimology. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, his M.O. was the hitchhikers, of, of opportunity, uh-huh. I feel like. But I think victimology, I mean, it is a certain type of person because you and I definitely wouldn't be there. Yeah, but it's not, it's still a circumstance. It's still how he's getting them. It's yeah. not who he's getting, it's how he's getting them. Yeah. I think, again, could be splitting hairs. What the fuck do I know? Me I just want you to agree with me. And you ain't going to do it. <laughs> I would just say he had little victimology. Like, little to hardly any victimology. Not no clear victimology. I don't think that's a thing. You said, those are phrases. I don't know if they've ever been said. (laughs) I used words. (laughs) Hello. Groundbreaking terminology here. Yeah, okay. Well, just get you your own show, Mindhunter, over here. (laughs) Brain farter. That's the truth. (laughs) I do believe your girl. It's weird, and I kind of don't want to. But like you said, it's impossible to argue the science of, like, she knew where shit was. Yeah. And, like, every test that they threw at her, she knew. She wasn't boastful, and she wasn't just like, look at me, look at me. I know all this stuff that y'all don't know. Like, she just was happy to talk to anyone who loved Egypt as much as she did. And she just wanted to help these Egyptologists. I hope I'm saying that right. Big occupations that I never know anything about. Um, even in that interview when she's older and everything, she's like, I love my neighborhood. There's just no one who has my passion. I miss my colleagues a lot because they could sit and talk for hours about one certain ruin and all the things. And, you know, other people are like, we just live here. Like, it's just our home. Yeah. You know, it wasn't their only interest. And so I totally get it. But like, it just made me, oh, I'm Seti. If only the internet was really available for her because she could have been in all the chat rooms. Well, y'all let us know what you think. Do y'all think that she actually was reincarnated? Do you think it was all boo shit? Do you think that uh, Ivan acted alone? Do you think he had a partner? Let us know what y'all think. Thank y'all so much for listening. And remember, it's my birthday today, but you can creep it real. And And don't don't get scared. scared.